0: Good morning. It's good to see you, and uh, it's good to, good to be back. Thank you for your prayers for our uh, group that went to, to Gatlinburg. It was good to be back with Smoky Mountain. Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. So, last week we looked at how Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem on the colt of the donkey as the people laid their clothes and palm branches down, and they praised Him as the Messianic Son of David, the King of the Jews. And that he was coming into Jerusalem, and, and this, of course, worried the religious leaders in Jerusalem, right? They, they saw Jesus as a threat to their influence and power. They uh, were worried that Jesus might catch Rome's attention with this kind of talk and, and, and cause some problems for life in Judea. So they were worried. But then the next day matters got even worse as the same Jesus of Nazareth caused a commotion in the temple, He was in the temple overturning the tables of the money changers. He was letting the the doves fly free. He was chasing out the sacrificial animals with a whip. And as he was doing it, he was ranting and raving about how his father's house was supposed to be a house of prayer, but they had made it into a den of thieves. Something had to be done about this man. So on Tuesday, when Jesus dared to show his face in the temple again of all places... Teaching a growing crowd, the religious leaders knew they had to confront him. They had they, they could not let this go unanswered. They had to know who did he think he was. Where did he get off acting this way? By what authority did he think he could speak like this? Who is in charge of the temple anyway? The, the, the Sanhedrin and the priests or this rabble-rousing rabbi from the backwoods of Galilee. Who is in charge here? And that's where we pick up the story in verse 27 of Mark 11. They came again to Jerusalem. This is on Tuesday. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes and elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, then, then they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered him, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See, the religious authorities both wanted to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people, but they also wanted to frame him with some kind of crime that would force Rome's hand to take care of him for them. And Jesus was perfectly aware of all this. He knew their motivation, he knew their plans, and he decided to use this confrontation for his own purposes, to further establish that he was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and he was the final authority over the Torah, the temple, and truth itself. These confrontations that happened mainly on Tuesday, but a few other times you know, into Wednesday, they took the form of a contest of questions. And this first question was a question of authority who is in charge here or as the chief priests elders and scribes put it by what authority do you do these things and who gave you the authority to do these things now those are good questions and in asking those questions really the sanhedrin this almost like the jewish supreme court of religious authority this this group of sanhedrin they were actually kind of doing their job You see, the the Torah gave them the job and the authority to investigate anyone who claimed to come from God or speak for God. In fact, back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses uh, prophesied that someday God will raise up a prophet like himself that the people had to answer to and obey. And it says this, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers, and you must listen to him. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. Now, by the time of Jesus, this was understood to be the Messiah, that the Messiah was going to be this prophet like Moses. But Moses also went on to tell them that, look, even though there's coming this prophet someday you must listen to, there will also be false prophets you shouldn't listen to. And so he goes on to say, but the prophet who presumes to speak a message in my name, that I have not commanded him to speak, that prophet must die. And you may say to yourself, how can we recognize a message the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the Lord's name and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. Do not be afraid of him. So in a way, the Sanhedrin, that's what they were doing. They, were, they were, you know, it looked like they were investigating Is this a true prophet? Is this the Messiah? Or is he a false prophet? But it looked like that's what they were doing on the outside. That's not what their heart motivation was on the inside. And Jesus knew this. He knew their hearts. They weren't truly investigating his teachings to see if they were true. They'd already made up their mind about Jesus. They weren't looking for truth. They were looking for ammunition that they could use against him. And Jesus decided to play their little game. But he was going to turn the tables on them and lay a trap of his own. Really, in asking these two questions, what the Pharisees and Sadducees and this group, what they were trying to get to were two things about Jesus' authority. The first was the nature of his authority. Or, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, the nature of his authority. They want to know the nature of his authority. Was Jesus just an overzealous rabbi who wanted to bring religious reform and revival to the people? Was he claiming A religious authority. Or, as the crowd seemed to think, was Jesus claiming a political authority? Was he trying to set himself up as king and overthrow the Roman Empire? What was the nature of his authority? Religious or political? Spiritual or secular? That's what they wanted to know. But secondly, they wanted to know the source of his authority. Was his authority just simply that of a man? Was he just a man? Like every other man, speaking as a man. If so, then you know we'll just kind of let this play out, and you know maybe we'll try to catch him, you know trap him in some kind of a uh, you know a verbal misstep so that the people will lose interest in him. Or, and this was the this was the option that scared them the most, was his authority from God. Was he really speaking and acting as someone sent from God? Because if that was the case then there was really nothing they could do except kill him. So again, Jesus knew all of this. And that's why Jesus redirected the conversation to the ministry of John the Baptist. What was the nature and source of John's authority? And this question really put them on the defense and it exposed their real motivation, which was their own power, their own influence and control. It's all about political power. It's not about principles. It's not about truth. And so they weren't going to acknowledge Jesus' divine authority, nor were they going to deny John's authority, because that would get them in trouble with all the people. So they took the safe route. And they answered, We don't know. We don't know. Now, of course, this answer really exposed their weakness, because it showed that they really didn't care about the truth of the Torah or about the temple. They really didn't care because if they, if they really believed that Jesus and John were just men and had no authority from God, and yet they refused to publicly denounce them right here, they were really abdicating their, their purpose and their job. They, they were exposing themselves in a stunning, embarrassing display of cowardice that really put politics ahead of their, ahead of their self-proclaimed principles. So Jesus refused to directly answer their question, not because Jesus was being evasive, but because he didn't want to endorse their hypocrisy. See, Jesus didn't directly answer their question as a way of refuting their authority. Now, I say Jesus didn't directly answer their question because he then goes on to use a parable and an object lesson to exactly answer their question. He's going to tell them the nature and the source of his authority. Now, why is this all relevant to us today, before we get deeper into this? Well, it's because questions of authority are being asked today. This question is just as relevant today. The political powers in our society, be they political or economic or cultural or even religious, whenever those powers feel threatened, whenever their preferred narrative is challenged, that's what they ask. Who are you? Who do you think you are? By what authority do you say or do these things? Who puts you in charge? We see today parental authority is being questioned. You go to, there's school board meetings all over the country over this. Who's in charge of your children? You or the state? Who has authority in the lives of your children? Who gets to have a say in their education? When it comes to the issue of protecting the unborn. Whenever a reasonable argument is made based on logic and science as well as Scripture, what they will come back with is things like, you know, you're just a man trying to control a woman's body. Leave my body alone. You can't tell me what to do with my body. This is a private matter between a woman and her doctor. In other words, what they're saying is, by what authority do you have to tell a woman what she can and can't do with her body? Who are you to say whether I can kill the baby in my womb or not? Who put you in charge over me? That's what they're saying. When it comes to the issues of race relations, critical race theory proponents will say that America is an inherently and racist country in its roots, that white supremacy infects every institution of society, and if you're a white person, you are complicit in the crimes and injustices of your ancestors. That's what they will say. But if you dare speak back with accurate statistics, with actual history, with logic or, heaven forbid, Scripture, then you're going to be called a racist for even raising the question. You're called a racist for citing the facts or for using logic. And if you deny that you're a racist or a bigot, well, that's just proof positive that you are a racist and a bigot. While people are told that they could never understand or be able to speak to racism as an issue. In other words, by what authority do you speak about this issue? Who put you in charge? Listen, we could go on like this about a host of issues. LGBTQ issues, uh, religious liberty issues, gun control, the environment, on and on. Who is in charge of churches and religious schools? That's a big fight that's coming, y'all. Who gets to decide who we as a church hire Or have to let go. Do we get that say? Or does the government get to say that? When it comes to religious schools, we're seeing battles in the courts right now over whether a religious school gets to hire and fire teachers based on their beliefs and principles or what the government says you have to do. Just this past week, the question for your business, who is in charge? You as the employer, as the owner, or the federal government? Who is in charge this is a massive issue today. And they will tell you not to use the Bible to speak to these issues because faith is a personal matter that should be kept private. Our own President of the United States claiming to be a Catholic, claiming to adhere to the teachings of a Catholic Church which says that life begins at at, at conception and that it is sacred until death. He even says that he believes that, but he won't allow his faith to influence his policies. I'm sorry, but that is just as cowardly as an answer as the Pharisees saying we don't know. Because the question is, when it comes to who is in charge, you can't have it both ways. You can't be lukewarm on this. Jesus said you're either against me or you are for me. So by what authority can we say that the unborn life must be protected as sacred? Who gives us the authority to say that marriage is between a man and a woman? Are these just religious claims? Are these just personal beliefs that should stay in our Bibles, our homes, and our churches? Or are these universal truth claims that should have a bearing on the laws of the land? That's the question. And Jesus tells us that God is in charge that he does have ultimate authority over the cosmos, and that means the temple and Jerusalem and all of Israel as well. And so Jesus uses a parable to expose the true intentions in their hearts. And in so doing, Jesus explains the source of his authority, that his authority, just as John's authority, is from God. And I think that we can use this parable to illustrate for us as 21st century Christians that God is in charge of his church. God is in charge of Israel. God is in charge of His church. God is in charge of His people. Let's look at chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, built a watchtower, and then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them, but they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Oh, then the master sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully, and he sent another, and they killed that one. And he also sent many others, some they beat, and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Have you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. So how did the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes and priests and elders respond? They were looking for a way to arrest him but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Jesus obviously uses this parable to implicate them in John the Baptist's death as well as in his own impending death at the end of this week. But the parable also speaks to the question of authority and ownership. Who is in charge of the vineyard? Is it the owner or the tenant's? The tenants had come to believe that they were in charge. And they were willing to do whatever they could to protect what they thought was theirs. They came to see the owner as a threat. And so they killed his messengers. They even killed his son. Well, the Pharisees and and, and this group, the the Sanhedrin, immediately knew that Jesus was speaking this parable against them. Because Jesus was basing this parable on Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7. Look with me on the screen or in your Bibles. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. We need to understand this. Background to this parable. Isaiah says, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. Sounds just like what Jesus was saying in this parable. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. This is now God speaking. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I'm about to going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will tear down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded, thorns and briars will grow up, and I will give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair." So Isaiah sings this song about God as an owner and, and tender of a vineyard. And he, he plants this vineyard, the people of Israel. He provides for them and protects them and tends to them so that they would produce only the best grapes, the best fruit, righteousness and justice. But what did God get in return for all of His investment? Worthless grapes. So God judged the vineyard. He tore down the protecting wall. This is obviously a prophecy of Babylon, which would soon come in and tear down the walls of Jerusalem and leave it abandoned and, and, and full of weeds and untended. Grape vines were a national symbol for Israel. They were carved all over the temple. So clearly this parable was about Israel and how they had treated God's servants The prophets, you see, the servants in the parable. Prophets in the Old Testament were often referred to as servants, such as in Jeremiah 7.25, where God says, I've sent all my servants, the prophets, to you time and time again. And Israel had a history of time and time again mistreating and abusing and persecuting and killing God's prophets. As Nehemiah chapter 9 says, that they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets. Who warned them in order to turn them back to you, they committed terrible blasphemies." If you read Hebrews 11, it goes into great detail about the, the way the people of Israel had so progressively mistreated and abused and murdered the prophets of God. Well, in the parable, the master finally had enough. And so he sent his only beloved son saying, "...certainly they will respect my son." Now, why would the master think that they would respect the son? Because the son represented the father. The Son represented the Master, right? He had authority. But we know that the tenant farmers actually killed the Son as well. Jesus here is answering the question about the source of His authority. He is saying that He is the Son of God, that He has come from the Master of Israel, Yahweh, the Great I Am, the Lord God of Israel. He is the source of Jesus' authority. And he's putting the question to them, Will you kill me as well? Now, this story in a way seems kind of ludicrous, doesn't it? I mean, you think about it. What was in the mind of these tenant farmers? They're mistreating and they're abusing and they're killing the master's servants, his messengers, and and then they, they kill the master's son. What did they think they were going to get out of this? Did they think they were going to get away with it? Were they not afraid of him raining down retribution on their heads? It seems kind of silly. That's exactly the point. Jesus was illustrating that the Jewish people, and by extension, all of humanity, we are foolish to think that we can rebel against our Creator God and somehow escape His divine wrath. You see, sin is illogical. There's nothing logical about sin. Because sin is a rejection of the authority of our Maker. Think about the, the, the Adam, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Why did they want to eat the forbidden fruit? Because they wanted to be like God. They were already made in God's image. What more did they want? They wanted authority. They wanted to be able to determine what was good and evil. They wanted to be able to say for themselves what was right and wrong, what was true and false. And we do the same thing today. That's why issues of morality and ethics are always biblical issues. That's why we as Christians do have authority to speak to issues like this. In fact, we're compelled by God. To speak the truth about sexual morality and the meaning of marriage and the value of human life from conception to the grave. Our authority to speak truthfully on issues like race and economics and violence and war and health care. That authority comes from God Himself because God's Word speaks to these issues. Really, this is what we've been talking about, those of you with me, on Wednesday nights. It's all about worldview. What is your worldview? And if, if the 20th anniversary of 9-11 doesn't remind us of anything else. that should remind us of the fact that we are in a war of world views. And that war took very physical, real shape on September 11, 2001. But it is nonetheless real today. The tenant farmers of many churches today and of the broader culture have rejected God's authority, and they are trying to silence His servants today. Bible-believing Christians, we are considered the enemy. But we're called to be salt and light, to be ambassadors of Christ, to represent God's will and ways in a dark and decaying world. We are commanded to speak the truth of God's Word to people so that they will be convicted by the Spirit and hopefully turn in faith to Jesus. And then we're to teach them to obey all the things that God commanded. That's the Great Commission, right? And you know what Jesus gives us in the Great Commission? He gives us His power, His presence, and His authority. Look at Matthew chapter 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. Now that therefore means that Jesus is saying, because I have authority, I am giving you the authority to go into all the nations and make disciples. I'm giving you the authority to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I am giving you the authority to teach them to obey all the things I command you and to back up that authority. I'm going to be with you always to the end of the age. Based on this, Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.20, saying, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making His appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, Jesus is also honest enough later on to tell us that we should expect to be rejected and persecuted just as he was. The world will hate us for this just as it hated him for this. And then Jesus puts the question to the religious leaders asking, what will the owner do? Of course, echoing Isaiah 5.5 where God says, I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. And sadly, we know that in A.D. 70, God once again tore down the walls of the vineyard when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and left it a burning pile of ash. Now, who are the others that God is going to give this vineyard to? Listen carefully. The others are the church, the followers of Jesus, made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. The church is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through his descendants, all peoples on the earth would be blessed. Now, this is not what some call replacement theology. Replacement theology says that the church replaced Israel as God's people, that all of God's promises to Israel were then negated. That's not what Jesus is saying. Rather, He's saying that believing Gentiles will join and have joined with believing Jews to create a new covenant community. And there isn't a remnant of Israel within the church that maintains that continuity from the old covenant to the new covenant. Now, Jesus then ends this parable quoting a Messianic psalm, and what He's pointing out to them is that He is the Son that they will reject and kill, but God will take that rejected stone and make Him the cornerstone, that Jesus is the center of the salvation authority. As Ben said, He's the one who died and rose from the grave, and therefore therefore He has final authority and say over all matters, religious. Over all matters, period, as we will soon see. Jesus is next confronted by a second group, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, this is fascinating because the Pharisees and Herodians didn't like each other. They were polar opposites. You can think of the Pharisees as representing the conservative right wing Jews, and the Herodians were, were, uh, they kind of uh, represented the uh, elitist left wing citizens of Jerusalem, right? The the, the, the high and highfalutin people. That was the Herodians. The, The Pharisees hated Rome. They, they detested Rome's influence. The Herodians loved it. They benefited from it. They, they did more than accommodate it. But, you know, as the saying goes, the enemy of your enemy is your friend, right? So they, they bound themselves together to go after Jesus. And Jesus uses this controversy in one of the great, brilliant switch ups in history to demonstrate that his authority not only comes from God, the source of his authority, but the nature of his authority. And he tells us that God isn't just in charge of the church. God is in charge of the nations. Let's look at verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. And when they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful. Don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. So they're buttering him up, right? They're flattering him. They don't really believe this. Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? They asked him. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. So the Pharisees and the Herodians thought they had the perfect trap for Jesus because no matter how Jesus answered, they had him. The Herodians supported the tax. Now, this was a poll tax. This was a tax that every non-Roman citizen had to pay every year. And, in fact, the imposition of this tax in 86 is what led to the creation of the zealots, right? So the zealots were completely against this. Well, the Pharisees were against it, too. The Pharisees saw this as as, as, as blasphemous, that they would have to pay this tribute of allegiance to a pagan emperor. So they, they didn't like this. So no matter which side Jesus came on, down on this very politically sensitive issue, he was trapped. He's either going to anger Rome, and the Herodians are going to go tattle on him, or he's going to anger the people. And the Pharisees are going to say, see, look, he's a Roman sympathizer. But Jesus blew their minds. He did what they didn't expect. He, he answered in this simple yet sophisticated reply by asking for a Roman denarius. And he asked Whose inscription and image are on this? Well, the image was Emperor Tiberius. And the inscription on one side read, Tiberius Caesar the Divine Augustus, and on the other side it said the chief priest. So the Pharisees saw this as blasphemous and idolatrous, right? They were completely turned off by this. So Jesus, when he answered, he neither denied the paying of the taxes, nor did he defend it. Rather, Jesus made one of the most important political statements in history, as well as a deeply theological argument about the nature and scope of God's authority. Jesus' opponents were trying to frame this in a God versus government argument, right? That you couldn't faithfully worship God if you're going to submit to the Roman government. But Jesus made the point that in His sovereignty, God established Kings and governments. Therefore, obeying God is compatible with submitting to the government. In fact, it's required. If you're going to obey God, you must submit to the government that is under the umbrella of God's ultimate authority. Jesus' use of the image of Tiberius is brilliant in two ways. The first way is that in, in ancient thinking, the coin actually literally belonged to the person whose name and image was on it. So, in their economy, the coin literally belonged to Caesar. Now, that doesn't quite apply to us and our economics today, but the second meaning behind this does. Jesus, when he asks whose image is this, is obviously referring back to Genesis 127, where it says that God made humanity in his Image. Jesus is saying that everyone, including Emperor Tiberius, is made in the image of God. And that is why God has ultimate authority over everyone. And the emperor's authority comes underneath God's authority. It's granted by God's authority. That's why we can give to Caesar what he is due. I hate to say it, even our taxes. But the broader implication. The broader implication is that there's no such thing as a secular sphere and a sacred or spiritual sphere. See, that's what the the argument was trying to set this up. Like, there's two different spheres. There's God and there's government. There's religious and there's secular. But Jesus is saying that everything is spiritual. That God is sovereign over Rome and God is sovereign over the United States. God is sovereign over Caesar and God is sovereign over Congress. The secular is always subject to the spiritual. Did you hear that? The secular is always subject to the spiritual. Now in the City of God, his his great work, Augustine outlined the dual citizenship of Christians. That we are citizens of man-made states, but we're also citizens of God's kingdom. But as citizens of God's kingdom, that is our first and foremost duty. Because our citizenship is eternal. We are temporary residents on this earth. So in in one way you can think of our American citizenship as a temporary work visa. Or better yet, we are actually God's ambassadors to the United States of America. We are God's divine representatives to this land. And that means that we've been given authority by Jesus to pray for, to speak to, to work in and to transform every sphere of society. Listen, there is no place where the gospel doesn't apply. There's no issue God's Word is not sufficient to guide us in how to think and live. There's no job or place or activity that falls outside the scope of God's authority. None. And as ambassadors of Christ, as disciple-makers, as salt and light, we have a mandate To speak out for and to stand up for what is true and right. To speak for those who have no voice. To defend the defenseless. To work for biblical justice. To help those in need. And we do it with a biblical worldview. We do it in the name of Jesus. We do it in the hope of helping people come to know love and follow Him as their Lord and Savior. This means that our submission to governing authorities comes underneath our ultimate submission to God. Giving to Caesar what is Caesar's is just one part of giving to God what is God's. That's the amazing thing about what Jesus said. He was saying there are no two spheres that never the twain shall meet. Jesus was bringing government's rule under the authority of God. And that means that as Christian citizens, we have a duty, as 1 Timothy 2 says, to pray for our government. We have a duty to obey the laws when they don't contradict God's clear law. We have a duty as Americans to get involved, to vote, to speak out, to to be informed. Listen, maybe even to run for office. As Christians, we have a duty to be involved in the civic life of our community. Now, there's a lot more we can say about how we as Christians function as citizens. I encourage you to read. These are in your notes. Read Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 about how and when to submit to the government. Also read Acts chapter 4 and 5 about how and when not to submit to the government. Sometimes the Christian thing to do is to resist the government. But the basic question I want you to consider today, who is in charge of your life? Who has authority over you? Is it you? It someone else is it some other belief system is it some addiction or habit who is in charge of your life where do your allegiances lie God's kingdom or the world's kingdom will you submit to his authority in your life will you let God be in charge I invite you to come today and to say God I've been running the show I've been I've been letting other people call the shots I've I've been a slave to this habit or this addiction in my life. God, I want you to be in charge. Forgive me of my sins and live within me. I want to invite you to come today and make that decision. Jesus died on the cross to set you free from all other masters so that you could live and serve Him in true freedom. Today's invitation really is a call for profound commitment to God. We all bear God's image by virtue of our humanity. And we're all guilty, maybe not of physically abusing or killing messengers or Jesus, but every day we deny Him, every day we resist Him. That's what we're doing in our heart. Or will you receive Jesus as the Master of your life? Even as Christians, listen, we can be guilty sometimes of of shutting God off into this little corner of our heart. And we'll pull Him out on Sundays. For really good Christians, we'll pull Him out on Wednesday nights too. (laughs) What about Monday morning? What about Friday night? What about Saturday afternoon when you're watching that football game and you feel the temperature rising and your ears are turning red and you getting a little agitated? Is Jesus in charge of your life now? Would you stand and pray with me? Father, you do have all authority. You are sovereign. You are in charge of this universe. You hold it in the palm of your hand. It exists because you spoke it into existence. And we are here as bearers of your image. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now whether people acknowledge that, whether people live by that, or in open rebellion against you, that's the difference. If there's anybody listening today online, on the radio, in this building, that knows that they've been living in rebellion against you, I pray they would come now in humility and repent of that and submit to your rule and reign in their lives. And let's experience the grace of your forgiveness, And the freedom of life, the abundance of life that You promise, Lord. Father, we all answer to somebody. Somebody's in charge of us. There's nobody better to submit to than You. Father, as believers, as Christians, help us to also, especially help us, to live in obedience to You. Because not only are we made in Your image, we're being conformed into the image of Christ. So help us to live for You more every day and to extend Your grace and mercy to speak courageously and compassionately to the issues of our day. To be truthful, but to always do it with gentleness and respect. Because the end goal, Lord, isn't to win the argument, it's to win the person. To win them to faith in Christ. Lord, help us to be obedient to You, whatever You're speaking to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.